I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. When I went on the bench in juvenile court, I dispensed with the robe because I didn't want the kids, the kids on the delinquency docket, I didn't want them to see me as the system. I wanted them to see me as a person because I was seeing them as a person. In this episode, I interview Stephanie Weiler, a strong leading female judge with 12 years in private practice. We cover topics such as balance and perfectionism, our love of work, and the backlash of the Me Too movement. Thanks for joining me here on my podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Sure. Tell me about your career. Just give me a highlight highlights of it. Highlights of the career. Well, should I start with Let's go back to being a 16-year-old high school graduate okay. and being one of those overachievers. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, was, uh, I did that, too. <laughs> yeah, I graduated from high school in 1971, and I credit uh, my energy and my drive to my father, who I think crossed gender barriers way before his time as far as getting me prepared for the real world. Um But I went straight to college, straight to law school, took the bar exam when I was 23 years old, was a kid trying to make grown-up decisions as far as my career. Um, But it worked out okay. I went into private practice in Batavia in Claremont County, joined the prosecutor's office as a part-time assistant prosecutor, did that for two years, and then devoted uh, 12 years to my private law practice. Uh, It was what you called a general practice of law, Uh, doing anything from writing wills to representing people in divorces, personal injury complaints, criminal defense work, whatever came through the door back in the simpler days. Um, During the last four years of my private practice, I served, I was elected as a Claremont County Court judge. County Court no longer exists. Um, Brief explanation, it was a part-time municipal court because of our population size. Claremont County, as you know, has grown tremendously, so we now have a full-time municipal court. Mm -hmm. But I served four of my six years, uh, my six-year term in county court, but then um, ran for and was elected to the juvenile court position, which is a division of common pleas. Served there from 1991 until I retired in 2013, Mm -hmm. and I continue to serve in my old court as a retired assigned judge. I'm appointed by the Ohio Supreme Court. I'm an employee of Claremont County, and I'm handling the bulk of the custody and child support and visitation uh, cases that come through juvenile court for Mm -hmm. my successor, Judge Shriver. understand. Okay, yeah. uh, It sounds like when you first started out as an attorney, and many times this was the way it was back in, say, the, I don't know, 80s, Mm -hmm. um, where you... You were a generalist in the law field. You yes. didn't spe- uh, have a specific area of expertise. How did you decide to go from more of a generalist kind of law approach to wanting to serve in the area that you do in the juvenile division? Well, I, th- I think it was because I got to really sit in all the seats in a courtroom. Um, I did the two years as an assistant prosecutor. After I left there, I expanded my general practice of law to criminal defense, so I got to sit at the defense table. And then when I was asked to run for a county court position, it seemed like an interesting 
choice, just an interesting jump. Um, it augmented my salary, let's just be honest about mm-hmm. it. It got me into the retirement system More money. early, absolutely, and it was a wonderful learning experience. <clears throat> I think the reason, the major reason I got interested in juvenile court, well, two. One is professional, one's personal. Um, I was elected in 1986 to county court, served there until 1990 uh, when I ran, uh, ran for and was elected to juvenile court. In those four years in county court, it didn't take much to notice that the bulk of the defendants coming into court in county court were 18 to 24 years old, legally adults, Mm -hmm. but developmentally, emotionally, and all the brain research that's out there tells us that they're still kids until age 24. Right. Right. Um, And so I got interested in the young population. Hmm. Uh, by virtue of my uh, years in county court. And when the juvenile court position opened up, when my predecessor announced he was going to retire, I decided it was a good it was a good move. The personal reason why I made the move was during my years in county court, I chose another profession, parenthood, yes, and had my one and only son. and uh, going to juvenile court with, just uh, better hours and less late night demands. It really helped with you know balancing, balancing parenthood yeah. with the career. So right. that's why I did it too. Yeah. So professionally and personally, I had two good reasons for doing it. Don't regret it at all. Good. Um, it's interesting that you were, I would assume that I always think of being a prosecutor as being more of a male uh, mm-hmm. type uh, role and there are more men in prosecutorial uh, roles in in uh, the law field than women. Uh, how was it being a woman prosecutor at a fairly young age, young new to your career? Yeah, I was I was very young. I think I was twenty five when I started. Um, the The office was small, so there wasn't really a lot of room for separating people out by gender. Um, the bulk of my responsibilities, ironically, were juvenile court. And the Court of Appeals. I occasionally filled in in county court and common pleas court if one of the assistants was on vacation or otherwise tied up. Um, but I, I don't think it was really by design because of my gender, but those are the two jobs that I did. So it was a little different. Um, but, you know, that that's changed too. And mm-hmm. well, I'm talking about 1979, 1980. And okay. here we are three decades later, and one of our neighboring counties, Warren County, had a an elected female prosecutor running, you know, the county prosecutor's office. So mm-hmm. we've come a long way in the come prosecutor's office. I'm sure, as in many fields. Yes. Uh, I wonder, too, something that occurs to me is that when you had a child, your son, uh, did you find that you approached uh, the prosecution or defense, whatever role you were playing, in a different way where now you've got a child, so you know what it's like to be a parent. You know what it's like to be a mother. Did how, What changed? Sure, it definitely changes your, your perspective. Uh, probably n- whether you're a prosecutor, a judge, a, an accountant, or work in a bookstore, being a parent adds a whole new dimension to your emotions and mm-hmm. your levels of empathy and being able to relate to other people. So it, it did that. Um, where, it, where it really um, hit me was in juvenile court. He was only two years old when I was elected. So I was never a non-parent while I was on the bench in juvenile court, but he was a baby. And I know that having a having a child myself definitely changed the way I looked at um, the delinquent youth that came in front of me, as well as the 
stories that you see on the abuse and neglect docket, which are you never get used to. Um, and then even today, doing the custody and visitation docket that I do in juvenile court. By way of brief explanation, juvenile court takes care of those issues when the parents have never been married to each other. Okay. So it's basically a divorce without terminating a marriage. I see. So that's that's the docket that I'm doing. Definitely parenthood changes your perspective. Oh, I definitely. Yeah. And grandparenthood, too. Are you a grandparent yet? I'm a grandparent. Yes. Yes. And it does change how you see small children. It does. In, emotional, in an emotional way. Yes. Did me. Um, tell me um, a little bit about your personal background. Where did you grow up? Uh, you talked about your dad being an influence with you. Tell me a little bit about siblings. Um, I um, grew up here in Cincinnati. I went to Sycamore High School. Um my uh, older brother is a car dealer in the area. Probably recognize, yeah. yeah, recognize the last name. Right, uh, big brother that I uh, loved, loved and admired, and still to do to this day. Uh, we're very good friends. Mm-hmm. We really are. Um, my father was a really influential uh, person in my life. Um, he sadly passed away in 1985, mm. so he lived long enough to see me become a lawyer, but not a judge. Mm. Um, and I'm sorry about that. And he didn't get to meet my son either, which is unfortunate. But one of the best memories, the best way to describe him is 1959, 1960, when I'm in kindergarten, he actually recognized that I had a pretty good brain. Mm-hmm. And so we would take walks around the block and I would learn things. And then when I got into um, first grade, I would do extra credit reports for him. And we, as we would take walks, I would give him my report. Like w- the one that stands out of my mind was all about the assassination of Lincoln. At the age of six, I knew the name of the play and where he was sitting and all these things. But it was all just to keep my brain going mm. and to keep working. And it was really him driving me in a really, really good, positive way. Mm-hmm. He saw the intelligence and he encouraged it. And he didn't worry, you know, he didn't think of me as a girl that was not going to be able to achieve anything in life. He really, really taught me how to be all that I could be. Mm-hmm. And I thank him for that and every what day. what did he do for a living? Uh, he was a corporate guy, worked for Alice Chalmers, which then became Siemens Alice. Mm. Now Siemens and the big uh, Siemens German company. Yes, and he worked at the Norwood plant as a manager of community relations hmm. and professional placement and management training. And he walked mm-hmm. out after forty years. So wow. How, what about your mother? My mother was a stay-at-home housewife mm-hmm. who you know had snacks waiting when we got off the school bus and mm-hmm. all those good things. Yeah, great. Tell me about your career and some of the firsts. You know, sometimes uh, as we as ambitious women, and you knew you were very young like I did, uh, what were some of the, you know, female firsts in your career, second woman to do this, first woman to do that kind of thing? Well, I was the second female to be elected to Claremont County Court. I was the first female to be elected to the Common Pleas Court. Juvenile Court is a division of Common Pleas Court. So I was the pioneer in Common Pleas Court. Um, We now have a a second uh, female Common Pleas judge. Uh, Kathy Rodenberg is our domestic relations judge. Mm -hmm. So that was a first to be proud of. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things you'd mentioned at one point is that uh, while you used to do this, you don't wear a robe. 
when you're a judge. I always think the judges in the front, you know, sitting up on the bench, mm-hmm. you know, wear their robe and the collar and everything like Judge Judy. I mean, you're dressed, but you don't. Why, why not? Well, I did in county court mm-hmm. because I want, well, for one thing, I was 32 when I was elected to county court, so I didn't want to look like some kid playing dress up on the bench. Um, but um, I wore a robe there because I wanted it to be part of the decorum of, of the courtroom. It was also a great maternity dress when I was pregnant. <laughs> um, but when I when I went on the bench in juvenile court, I dispensed with the robe because I didn't want the kids, the kids on the delinquency docket, I didn't want them to see me as the system. I wanted them to see me as a person because I was seeing them as a person. Right. And I couldn't begin to tell you if it had an impact um, I'd be willing to bet it did on at least a number of them that I, I was just so. there in regular clothes, uh, trying to talk to them and try to get to the bottom of what was right. going on so we could fix it. Build some trust so you're not like a policeman in a uniform. You and, have a uniform. You're sitting up on the bench and, and within this uniform, and they're intimidated by the authority. Right? And I think also not wearing the robe at least gave them some hope that I was actually listening to them and yes. hearing what they had to say. Right. Yeah, that's great. How How do you think being a woman has helped you being a juvenile court judge. How do you think, uh, you know, versus a man? I mean, where, where do you think the advantages are there? I don't like to do gender differences a lot, and mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to get away from, I guess, in all the changes recently. But I think that um, what's unique about juvenile court, that judgeship, compared to the other common pleas, general division judgeships, and even municipal court, um, it's so much more than just sitting on the bench. There's so much networking in juvenile court with all the other child-serving agencies in, in the county, um, all the private nonprofits that are serving children with mental health, substance abuse, victim issues, anger management. There's such a coordination of um, empathetic resources for these children that I really think being a woman gives gives me a little bit more credibility when talking about some of the things that are happening in court. I've done a number of, uh, over the years, uh, high school commencement addresses. I even uh, did a UC uh, evening college commencement address, which was really a lot of fun. And I drew on my juvenile court experiences, but I think it was through a woman's eyes. I really mm-hmm. do. But I think it's the empathy factor. And I think when people talk about juvenile court and they think of juvenile court, they think of it as a kinder, gentler court than what we think of when we see Judge Judy and all mm-hmm. the other courtroom dramas on TV. So I think right there, it's got a mm-hmm. softer side. So you don't like to maybe necessarily draw distinctions between you, what you do as a woman versus what a male does, but maybe how you're regarded by them. It's exactly right. It's more the perception than the, the reality. Yes. Right. Got it. Um, you, uh, you talked about your dad a bit, and it sounded like he was different than my dad in that my dad liked to work on cars, but he never invited me to come over mm. and, and uh, say, here's what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, because I was a female after all. I would never understand what he's doing. But your dad wasn't like that. He wasn't like that. Um, I could uh, play basketball in the driveway with the best of them. I could throw a perfect spiral football pass across the front yard. I knew the make model of in year of every car on the road. Um, 
he <laughs> oftentimes said, I, "You're not gonna. You're pretty, but you're not gonna be a dumb girl." So I, <laughs> I was not a dumb girl. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, but there was, you know, back then. I think we're about the same age, uh, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, that you know, there was a, a feeling that women, girls, females don't understand things like make model car. They don't care. They're not interested. Right. And uh, you know, turns out we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, you teach at UC as an adjunct uh, professor, uh, associate professor in the criminal justice and human services uh, area there. What, tell me about that, like why why you sure. do that, why you like to teach. Sure. Um, well, I, I started in juvenile court in 1991, elected in 1990. Um, in 1999, um, I was invited to uh, come down as an adjunct and create a, a course. Hmm. So I created one on gangs and violent youthful offenders, which I, to this day, still teach, and it's been 20 years. It's pretty awesome to think of it that way. Um, But I I was invited as an adjunct because, as I'm sure you already know, an adjunct professor is somebody that basically is working in the real world, private sector, or whatever, and is imparting those experiences in the classroom Mm -hmm. at a college level. So I was bringing my courtroom experiences into the classroom. And I did that as an adjunct until 2013, which is when I retired from juvenile court. Um, I'm now um, on faculty at instead of an adjunct. So I'm an instructional specialist, and I teach uh, I teach full time at UC when I'm not when I'm not on the bench. I'm at UC teaching, mm-hmm. and it was really a wonderful experience for me. Um, while UC thanked me for coming down and doing it, I really thanked them and continue to because it was a great way to exercise my brain in a different way, think about things and and just embark on different challenges than what I had at, at juvenile court. And just as a somewhat humorous uh, side note, I wasn't sure that the kids in juvenile court were listening to me from the bench, but I knew that the students were. So it was really nice to know that somebody was paying somebody attention was listening. to me. Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was nice to see hopeful, forward thinking mm-hmm. young people. It really it was probably therapeutic emotionally for mm-hmm. me. Interesting the course topic gangs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what uh, is there? Uh, I would expect that you t- talk about the socialism of that, and that there's there is a, you know, we want to be part of a group kind of thing. Tell me about the course. Yeah, the course. And it's been 20 years ago. I don't know why I was inspired to do it because we really don't have gangs in Claremont County. So I didn't have a lot to draw on by way of experience. But um, the the course is designed to start out with just the historical development of gangs because the way they developed in the United States varies by region Mm -hmm. of the country. Then we get into the theory uh, criminological and sociological theories that are usually used to explain crime and delinquency, but they're also used to explain gang attraction and gang involvement. So we do the theory, and then we really just get into gangs, mm-hmm. what they look like, what's their hierarchy, their organizational structure, their beliefs, their rituals, their value systems, mm-hmm. their unwritten bylaws, um, their recruiting techniques. Um, we get into specific criminal activity and how they're becoming much more sophisticated mm-hmm. in recent years with high-tech, white-collar type criminal activity. Hmm. We then finish out the semester by looking at the process of leaving a gang, making that decision to leave and and how 
one exits the gang safely. Hmm. Um, and then uh, the semester wraps up by looking at various community and law enforcement programs across the nation that um, are addressing the gang issue mm-hmm. by way of gang prevention programs and gang intervention programs, mm-hmm. getting kids out of gangs. And so one of the uh, components of the uh, course, the students get the assignment on the first day of class, and it's due the last day of class. Their assignment is to, in their own you know, on paper, build their own agency, whether it's a gang prevention or gang intervention agency. But through the semester, they develop who their target audience is going to be, gender, age group, whether they're going to prevent high-risk kids or whether they're going to get, you know, do an intervention program for gang-involved youth to get them back into the mainstream. The the, um, assignment tells them that money is no object. They have an unlimited source of revenue for this agency, but they build an agency and they have a ball doing it. Mm. They come up with great names and some of them do it as a brochure, some of it do it as a video for me, but it's a way for them to use everything that we've done about gangs and in their own way, try to figure out who they'd like to target sounds and like, help out. Sounds, sounds like fun. It's a fun class. Actually, it's fun. a fun class. Yeah, yeah. gangs uh, that do good good things rather right. than right. You know, uh, not not do good things. But uh, yeah, that's great. You you made a comment, and I I agree with you that I don't like to make uh, broad brush gender comments like men are smart and women are not smart, you know, or men are this, men are more aggressive, women are, are not aggressive. So because if you start with that kind of thing, that men are this way, women are this way, it's the basis of gender bias, you know. But we do know that there is gender bias, you know, in all areas, including yours. I've interviewed a lot of businesswomen, uh, but you're in a, you know, you're in the, uh, you're a judge and you've been in law. And so um, tell me about, any gender things you experienced? You know, you were in private practice back in the, what, 70s and 80s? 80s, yeah. And uh, any stories there? Or um, how was it being a female lawyer in, in that private practice versus the men? Were, was the treatment different or anything like that? You know, I must have a tremendous sense of humor. Another <laughs> thing I got from my father, because I can never remember being offended by anything a male client or a male lawyer or a male judge ever said. Really? Uh, in, wow. In all, in all honesty, in fact, uh, when, I, when I went on the bench in county court, um, I couldn't do criminal defense work anymore. So my practice really became family law, mm-hmm. some juvenile court work, but a lot of divorces. And Claremont County was a relatively small legal community at that mm-hmm. time maybe 150 lawyers in the county. But there were, you know, a couple dozen who did the the divorces. And and one of the all-time great compliments was uh, an attorney who's now retired. He must be in his late 80s now. But he was just an irascible kind of guy that probably the hashtag Me Too people are thinking about in their mind's eye. <laughs> But he and I had a lot of divorces together, and I remember being in his office one day trying to, we were exchanging discovery, as they they call mm-hmm. it, you know, bank records and all this, and he looked at me and he said, you know what, Stephanie, I just thought I'd tell you, I don't look at you as a lady lawyer. I look at you as just a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just a supreme compliment. Oh, and yeah. what I got from that was that I didn't act like a lady lawyer, and I didn't 
flaunt that or use it as an excuse mm-hmm. or or anything. I was just a lawyer, and that just meant a lot to me. Yeah, it really yeah. did. And he didn't see you like here's this woman coming in being a being an attorney, right? And so, but but didn't treat you differently. Right. I just right. You know. Now I do have a funny vignette yes. from when I was a county court judge. And, I know this and, story. Yes, I love this story. I, I, you wanted me to tell yes. it, so I will tell your audience. So when I was a county court judge, this was 1986 to 1990, so we did not have court security uh, at all. And in the county court building there in downtown Batavia, I use downtown very loosely, um, <laughs> we judges, when it was our day to be on the bench, we walked through the front door and walked down the maze of hallways to get to the back door, which is where our little office was. And then from there, we went out onto the bench. Mm-hmm. So I was presiding over an arraignment docket at nine o'clock in the morning. And so it was probably 845 that I'm weaving my way through the halls. And there were probably 100, 150 people gathering for their arraignments on various things, misdemeanors. And as I walked through Two guys whistled at me and, I don't know, said something like, hey, good looking or something. And I actually felt sorry for him because I knew what was coming. <laughs> and so 15 minutes later, with my robe on, the bailiff announces the court's in session and everybody rise. And as I ascended the bench, those two guys were in the front row. And I think their jaws were on the floor because they realized that they had just catcalled and, by today's standards, sexually harassed the judge. <laughs> the judge. Because you weren't in a robe when you walked in, but at that time you were wearing a robe. Yeah, right? and I was, but there was no mistake, and it was the same person. So yeah. they, oh. knew, they knew that they had ogled the, ogled the judge. But I, when they a- appeared in front of me, both of them were there for a disorderly conduct while intoxicated thing, they could not have been more respectful. Yes, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. And I didn't say a thing, and there we went. Maybe yeah. they learned something, too. And you were probably in your early 30s about I that point? I was like 32, 33. Yeah. 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 Back when you and I maybe were young and cute. Before people called us ma'am. <laughs> yes. I had the young, cute days, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, to be young again. Uh, yeah, so talk about, you know, when, you, when you're a judge, you run for that position, you run for yes. the office, and so that's a risk to put yourself out there. Sure. And um, talk about taking that risk. Uh, yeah, um, in, in Ohio, all judges are elected to six-year terms. So mm-hmm. I was elected to county court in 86. I didn't complete the term because in 1990 I was elected to juvenile court. But 1986 was the time to decide whether I wanted to commit financially to it. And let's face it, nobody likes to lose. No. So, including you and me. <laughs> right. And and running for office is very very tiring. Yeah. Um it's you're out every night, you're at various meetings, you're at fundraisers, fundraisers. county fairs, mm-hmm. you name it. Shaking it, hands. It, yes, shaking hands and kissing babies kissing as babies. they say. Yeah. Um and of course there's a financial commitment to it. it. It's it's not cheap to run a run any sort of political campaign and obviously you have fundraisers but there's still a a buy-in that the candidates got to do because can never raise enough money so yeah there's an absolute risk and again it's a risk of being branded a loser you know Mm -hmm. will will the party ask me to run again if i am unsuccessful this time um but um what's the old saying failure is better than regret yes so that's how I decided to live my life and went for it. And fortunately, it worked out. 
and take a risk. Yes. And, and we've talked about that on this these podcasts that women don't always take the risk. No. That to put themselves out there like that and uh, to go for their dreams. This right. is something you wanted to do. And, you know. Yeah, and it worked out. So I was elected in 1986. Um, I had a contested race for juvenile court in 1990. But after that, I was unopposed. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, one year... I think it was either 1996 or, or 2002 when I went in to vote absentee in the primary because I was going to be out of town. I forgot I was on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> so I was that unopposed. So I, I was a little bit startled to see my name. Mm-hmm. So it became easier after after 1990. Yeah, good. Um, talk about... Uh We've talked about women and perfectionism, and uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about women and perfectionism? Do you think that many women um, you know, try to be perfect, and and maybe men don't try that? Of course, I'm making these broad brush statements, mm-hmm. but what do you? What about perfectionism? And would you advice? Would you give? Well, I think everybody's prone to perfectionism if they're going to be successful. They've got some element of that. You do, obviously. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't be where you are today. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it doesn't matter which gender you're talking about. But I think with regard to the women and perfectionism, I really believe it's what hand they've been dealt with that they have to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have an oppressive superior that's a male that is either expressly or impliedly keeping them down because of their gender? Well, then they're going to have to fight even harder. So is the perfectionism a defensive mm-hmm. mechanism or is it just in innate in those of us, and I, I'm talking right. about you and me, that have in fact reached, you know, gone for our goals and have been mm-hmm. successful? So I think I think what we have to distinguish is kind of a defensive perfectionism mm-hmm. to overcome gender, as opposed to just mm-hmm. it being your personality. Yeah, and I think for perfectionism for me is. Um, I learned early on, especially after having children, that most things just have to be done. They don't have to be done perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing that statement when my daughter was born and thought, okay, they just have to be done. They don't have to be done perfectly. And that there's a difference in perfectionism versus excellence. You know, I try to strive for excellent work, quality work, uh, the way I deal with people. Uh, but perfectionism can, is a, really about control and trying to have everything right. I think that's that's really an excellent way to look at it. I I had never thought about perfectionism versus excellence, but mm-hmm. I'm going to keep that one. All right, good. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Yeah, yeah it helped me uh, be a, a mother raising kids and having a career, knowing that yeah. I just had to get it get it done. Didn't have to be done perfectly. Um, but I do think it's a trap for women um, as well. Tell me about balance. Uh, what do you think is important in balance in your life? I remember sitting with you in 2013. I think you just retired or you were pretty close mm-hmm. to it. And I remember something you said about waking up the next day or the, the, the part that was a little hard was not having things scheduled or structured. I don't know if you remember telling I me that. But do. I absolutely yeah. do. In fact, just to elaborate on our conversation back then I had been had been given advice by some women who had retired before me I remember who said that. it would be about six months before you wake up in the morning not thinking about an agenda for the day where do I have to be and at what time and at what time and actually my retirement only lasted about six weeks because I then joined the faculty at UC and went back as a retired assigned judge um, but yeah there's 
balance. Balance is really, that's your real question. Balance is really difficult. And I don't know, men do it too. We know men, we know men who have decided to be Mr. Mom mm-hmm. while their wives go to work. It, it all depends on the person. Um, we, You and I know women who gave up careers to be full-time parents. Mm-hmm. You and I didn't. Right, I didn't. My daughter did. Right, and so everybody's got their own balance. And I, and I, I know for me, it was really important to me to preserve part of who I was before being a parent. And maybe it's because I was 33 when I became a parent, mm-hmm. as opposed to 23. Um, but I, I really wanted to have me continue mm-hmm. to exist because, as we know now, all these years later. Kids grow up in a nanosecond, mm-hmm. and then they're gone. And then, who are you? Right. Um, so not so. There's a balance emotionally, mm-hmm. but there's all and obviously there's that day to day balance. Getting to work. What if your child's sick? Right. Who's going to take care of them? All those daily logistical issues. But right. I think the emotional balance is really important. Yeah, and, I think and so. And I always wanted my son to be proud of me. Yeah. Uh, for for what I do, and and he is. Mm-hmm. And we've had so many really, really important conversations since he's become an adult about right. what I did for a living and the lives I've changed. And all those conversations were initiated by him. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I had that feeling, too. I knew that I would not be happy staying home full time with my kids. I knew that I also had to, if I wanted to pursue my career ambitions, I had to make sure that they were well taken care of, mm-hmm. they were safe, loving, stable home. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did that, uh, but I did also have the. Re- I do remember thinking, I want my kids to be proud of who I am. Yes, I, I want to do this, but I also want them to look up to me, you know, in a way. And I think what you and I are both saying in that statement is, we want to be role models. We yes. want them to learn by example. It's one thing to say, get up and go to school and do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we we showed them that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a. Um, I'm on the board of the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Cincinnati, and we have our board meetings at various Boys and Girls Club locations so that we get to mm-hmm. see the facilities. And there was a um, wonderful poster that said, "Winners do what they have to do; losers do what they want to do." Mm-hmm. And that I, you and I were showing by example to our children that winners do what they have to do. If you have a sore throat, you still go to work. Right. You know, if you would really like to stay home and watch Netflix, right. well, too bad. Yeah. Yeah, and the work ethic. Yes. Yeah. But you and I think I have something in common, a lot of things in common, but one is that we both like work. We do. We both, I get juice from work, I get juice, and maybe that's when you what you found. It's like, I need something. I'm going to go back to school, and then I'm going to go back to doing this. There's no reason I can't. I can balance my life. Right. You travel, I travel, and you can do it. You can do these things. You can do this. But I still like to work. I get juice from it. I, yeah, and you and I are lucky. We we love what we do, mm-hmm. and we get fulfillment and reward. Um, my late mother-in-law worked at the family business in a very meaningful position till she was ninety-seven years old. I remember you because me that. she loved what she did right. in, in the family business, and she, it didn't get a, in the way of her personal life or all of her world travels. But she worked. 
I, I, I don't think I'll be working, God willing, if I'm 97, <laughs> but, but God bless her, you know. She's my role model. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me end with uh, kind of a big controversial topic, but we talked about this before, um, and that is the Me Too movement. You've got some definite ideas about this. And of course, the Me Too movement started in really kind of just got, got went viral almost in 2017 around all of the sexual harassment and the egregious stories we heard in all areas, you know, in Hollywood, in politics, uh, medicine, business, you know, where there were egregious, you know, accounts of men not only misbehaving, but really, you know, big sexual harassment stories. So what happened is, you know, everybody started coming out and said, me too, me too, me too. So it was really, that was the basis of it. Mm -hmm. And yet the backlash, talk talk about what you see there. Well, yeah, and your, your recollection of the origins of hashtag me too are definitely right on. And if you think about those stories, they were sexual assaults, not sexual harassment. These weren't dirty jokes or, right. or what have you. They were extreme incidents, yes. which I, I'm afraid brought about an extreme response that is uh, broader than it was anticipated yes. being initially. Um, so again, I guess I go back to one of my initial comments about me having a tremendous sense of humor and never really having been offended um, in that in that way. And I've, I've, since you and I talked a few days ago, I kept going back in my memory, and I still don't have anything that I could really say that I felt victimized. But um, I, I'm just worried where it's going because the idea was equality, um, inclusion, uh, we're all the same, we all have the same goals, uh, no gender differences, but I think it's dividing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's dividing us even more. and. I say that because of experiences that my husband has. He's a uh, an attorney in Cincinnati. He's he's been to seminars which are pretty oppressive about how not to talk to a woman lawyer. He's afraid to talk to a woman lawyer. Yeah, um, and which, that's the shame. Yeah, and he's got a tremendous sense of humor, and everybody loves him, and he's afraid to have a conversation. I know that um, we have a daughter-in-law that. Um, um, works at Procter and Gamble in a very, very high-powered position, and she's seen changes as far as the social interaction among employees in, in the corporate world. Uh, it's not, hey, let's all go out and have a drink after work and you know just blow off steam. They're afraid to do that. Men are afraid mm-hmm. to include women in those natural social I know um, events impromptu events especially that are part of any workforce and I, and I know it's happening in the public sector as well it's happening everywhere and it's a real shame that this is. backlash is happening because mike pence our vice president said i won't dine alone with a woman unless it's my wife well and you know that what is about, a shame it is a shame here's the vice president of our country who has said you know, if I, I will not have lunch or dinner with a work associate or a political, per, you know, because it might re- be regarded as us having, there's something going on here. And uh, wow, that's that's a real shame. Yeah. Women aren't necessarily being hired. They're being treated differently. And, and, and men are doing it out of fear that they may be offensive. And the Me Too movement is just like, what I've said before is we just want you to behave yourself, and right. you know how to do that. Don't victimize women. There's a difference between victimizing and offending. And unfortunately, our politically correct environment mm-hmm. 
has painted with a broad brush mm-hmm. what's offensive today. Right. right. And but but being offended is not the same as being victimized, and I think mm-hmm. that's the line that mm-hmm. we have to cross. And you and I have been around for a while, many years, and. Uh, there have been plenty of times that I've kind of been with a group of guys, and I've been one of the guys. They tell right. off-color jokes. They drop the F-bomb. And, and I feel good that they feel comfortable enough that they do that I with me. I, I I don't feel offended. I don't feel like it's targeted toward me, correct. anything like that. But it's all of that has changed. It has changed, and it's unfortunate. And just as our parents said they wouldn't want to be us growing up, we're now saying we don't want to be our kids and our grandkids growing up and and what they are on. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it'll balance itself out. I hope so. Yeah. I hope it'll come back around, but I think it's going to take some time, and it's really a shame what's going on because that was not the intention. I agree. You know? The intention was noble, but something got yeah. terribly yeah. screwed up along the right. way. Indeed. Well, well, we'll root for the younger generation. That's right. We'll help them when we can, when right, we Stephanie? Can. Yes. Thanks for joining me today. Really enjoyed this. Thanks I always love invitation. being in your company. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Follow us on Instagram at LeadingShe. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have many great ideas for women leaders.